This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 69. Everyone gets to that edge and they pull back. And then the, the person is sort of like left there not knowing that they are no longer aligned to your expectation. The second thing that happens, though, is it repeats, right? Because you didn't handle it the first time, then you rationalize it the second and the third. You're building a synthesis. So now we're going from an observation of a single piece of feedback to you're painting this rich picture and synthesizing that not only is the person, do they mess up once, you're making a synthesis of they're not capable. And then you drop what I call the synthesis bomb. Finally, it builds up and it's happened so many times and you're so frustrated and you're like, oh my gosh, you're incapable of this. And it's the first time they're hearing it. And they're like, I thought I was fine. And then you're exasperated because you're like, how could you think you were fine? You've messed it up these six times. But in none of the six times did you tell them. In none of the six times did you have the small conversation. And then it gets extra complicated because you dropped a synthesis bomb. And now they don't trust you because you've held this picture of them for weeks or months and never told them. How do managers create value and impact? Why do the best managers reduce friction and create capacity for their teams? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Dave Klein. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's likely because you've seen his great content on leadership on LinkedIn or Twitter. With over 150,000 social media followers, Dave has built a reputation for thinking differently and more clearly on how to lead people than most thought leaders. His mission is to teach leaders his codified management playbook to build great teams and level up their career. And he honed his management philosophy and pragmatic approach over two decades leading high-impact teams at Bridgewater, PwC, and Moody's Analytics. These experiences have led him to launch the Management Accelerator with the goal of helping managers rapidly develop into trusted leaders by combining the art and science of management. I invited Dave on the podcast because I've been impressed with his smart, actionable, and innovative advice for people leaders. And I thought more HR leaders should know about him and learn from his work. And in my conversation, Dave and I discuss why he and his wife launched the Management Accelerator program and what makes it truly unique, why he believes the role of a manager is to deliver impact and why he created the impact equation, why the best leaders focus on reducing friction and cycle time for their teams, why leaders who are afraid to give feedback in the moment often drop what he calls the synthesis bomb and how it negatively impacts trust, and the six fears, rational and rational, that stop leaders from delegating to their teams and how to overcome them, and much more. Dave, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? JP, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for stopping by. I know you've been already teaching all day today, so this is going to be one more thing for you to do, but I know you're up for the challenge. And I want to kick it off and talk a little more about your career journey, which I think is really unique. Tell us a little bit more how you went from a managing director of product strategy to almost 10 years at Bridgewater and Associates to launching your own business focused on teaching leaders to build great teams. Like, What's the thread there? I think to start the through line, you need to rewind even further. I grew up relatively lower middle class a mom who honestly spent her entire life typing other people's words. 
that was like Kodak, like big corporations. And then a dad who like bounced around a lot, being a nurse to a mailman. But in between all those were like entrepreneurial shots, really trying to do different things. And most failed. As a teenager, one hit, he was out ahead of the home healthcare business. I grew up in two conflicting mindsets, like one which was money was usually scarce. As the first one to go to college, I had this idea that like I should create a foundation, I should build a nest egg, I should go learn some things I don't know, and then I'll start a business. But then I always had this entrepreneurial itch. So the thinking was, okay, two years as a consultant, maybe three years, and then we're going to start a business. And two years to three years as a consultant turned to 10 years at Moody's that turned into 10 years at Bridgewater that one day I woke up and I'm like, wow, the two years became 25. And if we're not going to start a business soon, we're never going to do it. But I left Bridgewater at the end of 20. We bought a business. The quick version of what happened to that business is that six weeks later, Google changed its algorithm, cut my business in half. So welcome to business ownership and all the surprises that come with it. But in a way that serendipitously brought a new chapter that I had vague notions of, but didn't anticipate. So I thought we'd have this business and I would teach at one of the local universities. There's tons of them nearby. And I ended up to try to save the first business writing online. Now I took a course with Sawhill Bloom about Twitter audiences, wrote a bunch of things. And some of them were about leadership and management and they started to resonate. And that led me to meet the folks at Maven, Wes and Goggin. And I was explaining that idea of having this business and teaching at a university. And they were like, that's crazy. Why wouldn't you just teach on our platform? There's a university of 5 billion people on our platform. I don't think any of the schools around you are that big. So I kind of laughed. Okay, like if I can get five or 10 people to subsidize me creating the curriculum, then great. I'll get a little bit of money to pay for me to build this and then I'll have something to take to these universities. Wrote a thread, went to bed, woke up with a wait list for the first course that we hadn't built yet for 150 people and sort of had this light bulb moment of, oh, wow, like maybe we're onto something. That was last March. 18 months later, we've taught this cohort to now almost 600 people. Some of those have been 50 companies sending one person into a big public cohort. Some of those have been at large corporations. I don't want to say accidental entrepreneur because it was on purpose, just not the business we set out to build right away. Well, I love that story. I really appreciate you talking about your upbringing because that does have such an impact on us. And as you think about becoming an entrepreneur, when you look at the stats, there's a myth about this sort of 20-year-old entrepreneur. Mark Zuckerberg is a little bit of an outlier. Most entrepreneurs are actually in their 40s. Yeah. And there's a reason for that because you get smart enough to figure out how you might be successful. There's an experience you really needed to have to really find and have the serendipity. And so I love it. I love this story. And the second thing I would just say, you know, Dave, the reason why I wanted you on the podcast is because I've seen the content. I think it's really, really well done. Being in this industry for 20 years, Plus, I've seen a lot of management content for how to train leaders. And your stuff is not only on point, but it's differentiated and it's pragmatic and realistic. And so I want to make sure people can hear your story, but also get more visibility to the amazing work you're doing and learn more about how you think about leadership. It's not, it's just frankly, just different. I appreciate it. It's a little bit cliche. Like sometimes you'll read online of people teaching lessons to their 22-year-old selves. But a lot of what I'm writing is sort of scratching at the itch that used to drive me crazy which is I'd get these great theories. Like you might pick up a management book or a corporate trainer would come in and they'd give you these great ideas. And someone, often me, I'd be like, yeah, but how? How does it actually work? Like how would I turn that theory into something that works for these four people who work for me or for this division? Oftentimes the people I was talking to, they, they had never actually done it. They hadn't gone from theory to practice. And so they couldn't even answer the question and that would drive me crazy. And so every time we write or we teach, I have this North Star of just once 
could someone who reads this or goes through this program or this lesson, could they leave and take a step? I'm so of the belief that if you take one step, you'll take a second and you'll take a third. And then the first one is the hardest. And even if the first step is wrong, you get a lot of real data. You get data based on what actually happens versus before the first step, all the data you have is of your imagination. Like it's you guessing. So that's why I definitely try to tilt practical. I think it's so true. And just like you wrote that first tweet or thread and then that turned into 150 people, that was the first step. But if you didn't take that step, you never would have known, right? So you put it out there, which is powerful. Let's talk a little bit more about what makes your management training program, the management accelerator program, unique. Maybe double click a little bit more what we just talked about compared to maybe what you've seen in the past. What we've heard from the people who've gone through it are three primary differences. So one we talked about, which is the business is run by myself and my wife. And we both have led teams. We've led teams at pretty incredible companies. We look back and we're like, wow, we're how fortunate were we? For me, I grew up Pricewaterhouse, Moody's, Bridgewater. She was Goldman, Google, Compass. Many people would kill to work at one of those companies, much less all six. And how fortunate have we been to have actually had some good managers along the way? I worked at one point for the person who headed SEAL Team 2. I worked for two different Army Rangers. I worked for seven different CEOs. Even that then layers on top of like, wow, all these different ethoses and experiences that let us look across all these different domains, right? Like consulting is different than financial services, it's different than education. And say like, well, what are the things that seem to work regardless? And that is what became the foundation of the program. That's number one, which is like, we've done it and we've had enough broad experience to see what's common. The second thing that's a big difference for people is this that for people who aren't familiar with the cohort-based program, we are bringing together groups of people, usually remotely, so online, but it's live. We're teaching live every time. The students are on there live. They're asking questions. We'll frame it as, this should be less of a lecture and more like a dinner party. Like, come off mute, ask your questions, get your clarifications. The beauty happens when someone asks a question or someone brings up a concept and it's not us who answer. It's one of the other leaders from a different company in a different context. And they start to make those connections. That's the second big difference is he's like, they get to make connections with people who wanted to learn just this topic from just these person at just this moment. So it's really high energy. The last one that we've heard is pretty different is that we offer one-on-one coaching to everybody. I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, an executive coach, that's for the CEO. And we just try to, at least within the container of our month, say, we make three promises. We promise you'll, you'll get through your biggest management challenge. You'll upgrade two parts of your system. You'll meet three great people. Those modules usually help people break through their biggest challenge. Those small breakout groups with their peers often help them break through. But if they don't, we're going to get in the room one-on-one and we're going to get to that management challenge. So I think those are the three things that make it different. The fourth thing is probably you. I mean, I think honestly, just knowing you, how much you and your wife care, I think that's also part of it too, that this is probably your personal mission is to help do this. And I think that just comes through so much. Let's talk more about the course because you start the course by defining how people, managers create value. Tell us more about how you think managers create value. The short answer is impact. If you wanted me to give you the one-liner, we move on to the next question, I would say the manager's job is to generate the highest amount of impact. What I've tried to do is break that down. I actually have an equation, the impact equation, and it has five variables, three variables on top, two variables on the bottom part. So the three in the numerator that you want to maximize, number one is having a really clear mission. I'm not precious about the word mission. It could be a purpose. It could be a goal. But the reason that you have decided to bring multiple people together. There's something you're trying to accomplish. And the clearer and more compelling that is, the more impact that group can have. The second piece is going to be the people. And that can be 
going into the world and recruiting the stars that you need that perfectly fit the mission. It can be developing people. It can be uncovering folks who maybe were overlooked, but because of what you're capable of doing, you unlock massive amounts of potential. But you want to put together the best people for that mission. And then the third thing is you want to arm them. You want to arm them to the teeth. There has never been a better time to give them software, to enable them with process. And those tools don't even have to just be software and process. Culture is a tool. The agreed upon behaviors and the values, all of those can be ways that we amplify groups to work together to achieve the mission. The first half of the equation is people maximizing those three. But then I divide it by two things. The other thing that a leader can do is drive down two factors. The two they can drive down is the friction. So can you remove obstacles? Can you get rid of wasteful work? Can you fire unprofitable customers? Can you get rid of bureaucracy? Can you cancel meetings? Whatever is keeping them away from having the most impact on that mission, can you run it out of your organization? So can you drive that as low as possible? And then the last one I think a lot of people skip is cycle time. How short are your cycles so that each time you're going through this loop, you're learning? And again, a manager's job can be like, how do you compress that? Because the more, I firmly believe that quantity leads to quality. The more shots you take, the more that will go in. And the ones that don't go in will give you the data so that the future ones will. In my mind, that's how a manager adds value by maximizing that equation. I love the impact equation. Really helpful to think about. The other common challenge that almost all leaders face in their career is taking over a new team. What advice do you have for someone who's in that situation? And how do you establish yourself as a leader of a new team? And there's two wrinkles maybe you get into, right? One is like, hey, I'm coming in new to the organization. You don't know me. The second, I think, the hard challenge, maybe even harder, is I was a peer, but I got promoted. How do you think about those two challenges? Now, your first question was like, how do you take on a new team? And I'd say like, don't. Which I say tongue in cheek, but part of it is, I think you have to want what management is before you sign up. Like a lot of times, I think people feel stuck. They're like, the only way that I can get more money, I can get promoted is to accept a manager role. That is near-term attractive, but doesn't last for very long. Like you have to genuinely believe that I want to start to add value through other people. I want to care about the people who are on my team so that I can challenge them to be better than they believe that they can be themselves. Let's imagine we clear that hurdle and you actually want to do this. I'll give you the, what I've seen work as like the general arc. And then we can sort of pull apart the distinction you have between new company and managing your old friends. The general arc I recommend is three phases. People usually skip phase one. So I'd say don't do that. Phase one is understand. Go in and be extremely curious. And I think this probably takes somewhere between two to four weeks. But it is, how do I understand all the history so that I can honor it, so that I can keep the pieces that make sense, so that I can help us upgrade the ones that don't make sense? How can I get to know the people? Who are my stars? Who can I unlock as a hidden gem? Who might I have to move on from? How can I learn about all the power dynamics between the different groups and things of that nature? So there's a real period to go in and be curious and don't commit. Don't start making choices and decisions and whatever else. You want to have a lot of data accumulated in the understanding phase so you can move to phase two, which I would call synthesize. I've dumped all this intelligence on the table and I have to sift through it. I have to figure out what's big from small. Who are the stars and how do I want to deploy them? What are we going to prioritize doing? And what are we going to say no to? And you can use that phase most effectively if you're co-authoring it with your team. If you go in and say like, I'm going to go hide in a room for four weeks and figure out all the answers. You might get to really good answers, but no one's going to be on the same page with you and they're not going to follow along. And so you are a leader now. And so using that phase, give people different components to co-author and, and write with you and get their opinion. You don't always have to take it, but at least hear them and let them know you're hearing them and 
That way you're leaving that phase with a, here's who's going to go do what next. Then leads you to phase three, which is execute. You've taken the time to be intelligent. You're creating really good plan. Now you have to go execute it. And my recommendation for folks in there are make sure your plan includes a couple quick wins, things that in that impact equation, let people see the pick the things, probably one thing that is leadership or your bosses will see as a very visible positive win. And then one that would be very meaningful to your team, right? If there's been just some small problem that you can ask new questions from, or you can come out from a new angle and unlock for them, that is tremendously valuable for adding trust. And then in parallel to that, I think you want to start to make progress on the bigger, more strategic, this is how we're going to transform, or this is the big new initiative, et cetera. But I've seen people dive into that second thing without some quick wins, and they very quickly lose credibility because they're not seen as someone who's like getting things. That's the arc. That's a really good arc. And I think you're right. That first phase of understand some of the leaders come in and they feel like, hey, I've gotten this new title. I've got to hit the ground running and make these changes without actually getting the followership. And yeah. understand what the situation is. And I love when you say honor the past, respect the past. And right, because no one made bad decisions on purpose. There was probably some context around why a decision was made. You may come in and think it's silly and dumb, but you know, you got to kind of understand what really happened before you change it. Cause you might find out that your boss made that decision and there's a reason why they did that. And now you're saying you want to get rid of it, right? What about when you think about the, that promotion? Hey, you're my buddies. And now next day I'm now your manager. Any advice around that that you guys have talked about in the course? This literally happened to me 15 years ago. There were two of us. There was one promotion. Like we literally were both named Dave. We had to be graduated from the same year. We're both 10 years out, very similar skill sets. Could have obviously picked either of us to do it. They Somehow they picked me. And so you sort of walk in the next day and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm your boss. And we were, a week ago, we were like best buds. I think I got this one right. And I think I got it right relative to it happening a few times before when I got it wrong. My, the honest thing I did is just sort of like pulled him in my office. It could have been either of us. I'm glad it's me, but it could have been you. And I wouldn't have been like surprised. I think two things are true. One thing is I want to do everything I possibly can. So the next one that comes up, it's you. And then the reality is if you can't be okay with the fact that it was me this time, then we need to find a different path for you. We just sort of need to cut through and get to, are you okay operating this way or not? I will do everything I can to support you and like set you up for success and like honestly operate with you as a partner because you're one of my good friends. But if that's not something you're comfortable with doing, then we should just hit that head on right now and then work to get you into a better spot in the org where you're okay. And he was awesome. We're on, like nothing changed. But I honestly, I had messed it up before. Like I had had a similar thing happen earlier in my career. In one scenario, I sort of pretended it didn't happen and nothing had changed, but like everything had changed. Like it had. Like, I might not have wanted it to. I now impacted like their pay and their career and their opportunities. And like to not, again, not to honor that reality was night. And then in a totally different case, I came in like way too overcorrected from the first one. And so I think that balancing act of, hey, let's just have an honest conversation right away. I've got you. But if that's not enough, we need to move on. That's the best advice I have. Yeah, I think that transparency was so important just to right away have a very honest conversation, right? Kind of yeah. the elephants in the room, let's have the conversation. And there's two clear outcomes and, and you're okay with both. Obviously, it sounds like you want him to be successful. He, he saw that, which is tremendous. In my time at Bridgewater, right? The concept of the principles, right? Like Ray wrote a book. And if you read through it, it's like 500 pages. There's like 250 principles. And a lot of the headlines of the principles are very intellectually agreeable. One of them is trust in truth. And you're like, oh, of course, I love the truth. Like, who doesn't love the truth? Like, I, 
of course. I got to learn that on the playground. I just got to trust in truth. And then you get faced with these business moments and you're like, oh, I don't know. How much truthiness do we want to trust right now? But what's funny is like every time I talked myself out of it, I ended up regretting. It's like you intellectually get it, yet somehow you don't emotionally engage to it. Then you pivot a different path and you come back and you're like, oh, now I get it. Now the two pieces connect. That was right. I should just hit it head on with high empathy, but directly. So anyway, just a sidebar because that, this is one scenario we're talking about, that sort of intellectual to emotional connection. It's funny how often that repeated through my career. That's a great insight. It's so hard to actually do what you did. And it's easy to do the other ways, right? And yeah. you can rationalize it to ourselves. And we do this all the time in leadership where we maybe don't give great feedback to somebody. We're like, well, I want to give them the feedback, but you know, it's going to hurt their feelings or this isn't the right time. They just had something happen. At the end of the day, you are hurting them by not just saying to them, this is the feedback I have for you. I want you to hopefully course correct, take the feedback as you will, but here is what I'm seeing. And when we don't do that, we're actually, we're cheating ourselves a little bit or hurting that person more. We were talking about this this morning in our program because we were doing the feedback module today. And the second half of what you said, so I 100% agree. Everyone gets to that edge and they pull back. And then the, the person is sort of like left there not knowing that they are no longer aligned to your expectation. The second thing that happens though, is it repeats, right? Because you didn't handle it the first time, then you rationalize it the second and the third. You're building a synthesis. So now we're going from an observation of a single piece of feedback to you're painting this rich picture and synthesizing that not only is the person, do they mess up once, you're making a synthesis of they're not capable. And then you drop what I call the synthesis bomb. Finally, it builds up and it's happened so many times and you're so frustrated and you're like, oh my gosh, you're incapable of this. And it's the first time they're hearing it. And they're like, I thought I was fine. And then you're exasperated because you're like, how could you think you were fine? You've messed it up these six times. But in none of the six times did you tell them. In none of the six times did you have the small conversation. And then it gets extra complicated because you dropped a synthesis bomb. And now they don't trust you because you've held this picture of them for weeks or months and never told them. Anyways, it's like exactly the same thing. It's like, you know, I should give feedback. You know that the small one's easier. You know that clear is kind. And it's so easy to rationalize. And then you pay the same price on the end. Only it's worse. I predict, Dave, that many HR leaders are going to now talk about synthesis bombs. Because I think this is something that happens all the time. We struggle with those HR leaders. And I had a situation recently where I actually wanted to get helping this leader to get the feedback. And, and it's not easy. Sometimes they need that coaching. But it was the same thing. They're afraid to give the, that small feedback. And it's like, you've got to yeah. give it, right? So I, I love, I love that you talked about that. The other challenge that I think many new and experienced leaders face is how they effectively delegate to their teams, right? But what are most leaders getting wrong about delegation? How do they fix this? The first place to start is not the tactics to solve it, but actually understanding the diagnosis of what prevents it. Where we start is, well, why don't you delegate? And what we found is there's six or seven fears, I think are a mix of actually founded. They are true fears. And then ones that are, they're very real to the person having them, but they're actually bigger in their own minds than they are in reality. It's like, just to give you a few, and we don't need to go through all of them, but it's like, I'm afraid that it won't get done as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. That is a rational fear because you know why? It won't. It will not get done as well the first time as if you just did it yourself. But the second time it's going to get done a little better. And the third time it's going to get done a little better. And by the fifth or 10th or 15th or 20th, I don't know what the number will be. It will be as good. And after that, it will be better. 
But if you're going to hold the bar that the only way you'll ever let go of something is if the first time is better than you would do it, you will never let anything go. But it's like they needed like to face that fear and be like, oh, okay, I'm having this fear and it's real, but the investment is worth it over time. Another one we hear all the time is my team's already overstretched. I don't want to dump more work on them. And I'm like, okay, real fear, but you're not actually getting under like, how do you deal with it? We talk about the easiest thing to delegate is something you deleted. Don't delegate crappy work. If it's something dumb or administrative and bureaucratic and not additive to the goal, make the one decision that rolls a thousand and get rid of it. Don't delete that. And you can do that on things they currently have or things that you're about to delegate. You're now freeing up and now you're no longer dumping because you've given them more capacity. But it's like people struggle to get into some of these tactics because they don't even just admit, hey, I'm afraid of being perceived this way or I'm afraid I'm going to lose control, which is another one. I'm afraid it's not going to be as good. Another one for the craftspeople of the world, the salespeople, the technologists, they're going to lose their authority. Like part of their authority comes from their subject matter expertise. And by moving away from the customer or moving away from the code, they feel like they don't have an identity at the level of leader. Their identity is like the crap. So if you get them to admit that, now we're like, okay, now we know what to go do. I love that you're getting to the root cause of it too. And I think one of the reasons I see people don't delegate a lot of times is that it's kind of giving the glory up. Hey, that team is now, they're the ones that may be the star. And people say, well, gosh, they're the ones doing the work. Did you do anything as the leader? It's like, well, yes, I helped do that. But I'm giving the opportunity to grow and develop. And I remember I did consulting early in my career. One of the, the mantras, one of the partners I worked with was that we should always be delegating down. He's like, look, you've done that before. That new consultant hasn't done that kind of PowerPoint deck or that kind of report. They should do that work. And I was like, oh, well, why? I was like, well, they need to learn it. You've already learned it. So you're actually right. cheating them from their development and their career by not delegating. And so that kind of really stuck with me of like, hey, look, I've done these boards for the deck. They asked my team, do you want to help us do that work? How do you delegate to help grow their career? That's key. I love that. You brought up a second piece, though, that's incredibly frequent and real, which is, if you're getting that message downward, that is like, well, what did you do? That is really off-putting, especially for a new manager. I think I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. As you move through layers of management, the things that you must value, the abilities you must demonstrate, the skills you must show are different. And partly one of the things you need to do is actually, this is going to sound condescending. I don't mean it to be like, educate your manager, like help them see that the job you're doing is different than the job that you were doing before. This came up again yesterday. This is how common these things are. Okay, you're now a manager and you're getting critiqued for no longer being hands-on code or whatever else. And you're like, well, I'm holding that what you, the value I really bring is going into the world and finding the best developers. The value I really bring is training and developing them. The value I bring is being the second set of eyes on well-developed code. Ideally, I find no errors. This is the level of system you need me building. And that's what's going to give you the platform for us to massively up the impact equation. And he was like, oh, yeah. And then I'm sort of curious to see when he comes back to class last week after having had that conversation, like, does the manager agree or disagree? But sometimes it's not. It's almost like they don't see the levels difference. And therefore, because they don't have the language for it, they revert to what they know, which is just like the thing on the ground. If you could give them those containers, they like, oh, I should be judging you on the quality of your team, the quality of their output, not whether you're the one doing it. Well, it's a great reminder because in HR, sometimes we have to educate our leaders on the impact of how we do yeah. HR, how we have impact. But I think anyone who is their manager, you have to set expectations and you may have to go back and help them understand depending on how sophisticated or unsophisticated they are. So I think it's a, it's a great point. And it's interesting how all this is, comes up in the class so often because a lot of this is, like you said, so common, right? Yeah. Dave, when you think about HR, what are HR leaders doing right and kind of maybe what are they doing wrong? 
when they think about developing leaders, what advice do you have for HR in this area? I've lived both sides of this equation, which is why I jumped there because I have a strong opinion about it. So I have both been a leader in sort of line business, and then I've run different departments of HR, right? I've run executive recruiting and leadership development, et cetera. I think that one of the most common mistakes we make um, as HR leaders, and again, I was just talking about this with a different HR leader a couple of weeks ago, which is we confuse our role as sort of identifying good management and enabling it from doing it. It can be very fuzzy. Just kind of give you a tangible example, right? I had someone, an HR person who was saying like, look, this head of technology, they're not managing their area well. Here's the things I want to go do. And I was like, you're, that's not your job. You've done the first part of your job, which is to understand your organization and say, the management going on underneath this head of technology is insufficient. Check. That's great. HR having this like double check quality assurance. Brilliant. You might say, hey, not only do I have that problem here, I have it in these five other organizations. We should offer something that's cross-cutting to support all of them. That wasn't the case in this particular scenario. But I'm like, okay, that idea of thoughtfully enabling people in a common way, that makes total sense to me. But what she was missing is I'm like, your job is now to put that on the CEO's radar. The CEO is the one actually who has the problem. The CEO is actually the chief culture officer and is the chief manager. When you're trying to come in from the side as a manager by influence, you're making a huge mistake because you're muddying the pond versus send the signal to the CEO. Effectively, you need to hold the CEO accountable. They're not managing. Like, did the CEO know this was happening Not or didn't know it was happening? Do they think it's a problem or they don't think it's a problem? They think it's a problem. What are they doing about it? Do they need any of your help from you? That's very different. The CEO activating you into that scenario versus you coming in from the side and you're like stuck between, am I being helpful? Am I being a partner? Are we being friends? I think that's a pretty common scenario because they don't have the map. Who's actually the primary management line? Who's the primary culture carrier? And I think oftentimes it's because CEOs muddy it for them too. It's a bit of a strong opinion. We'll call it loosely held. But I just think the more that we can be tight and clear about who does what, the more than HR can plug in and like be excellent at the piece that they do. Yeah, and it can be a common problem for HR leaders because depending on the culture, sometimes that CEO might be like, hey, I need you to go to handle it. And so we're in a tough place to go, well, now I have to go, go talk to this person. And now I'm meddling because someone else wanted to address that problem, right? And so hopefully that doesn't happen. But I think it's a great point of like, whose problem is this, right? Is this HR's problem or is this the line leader's problem? And I think we have to be much more clear on that. Dave, what is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I would say leverage. Why leverage, Dave? I think if you do the opposite of what I just said, if you said like, okay, where is HR best equipped to support, amplify the organization? I think it's on two, two sides of the ledger. One is, can they build up a real-time, high-fidelity intelligence engine for is the culture and the management alive in this organization? If they can do that, and again, they're using some of the primary methods of leverage, which would be like code, analytics, to look at the people and say like, I can in a real-time way spot emerging problems. We can be out ahead of them. We can solve them proactively. For responsibility one of being the intelligence agency, I think leverage, the people who will win in HR will be able to do that very well. I think the other one, the other place where leverage comes in is I believe probably the single biggest engine of leverage is learning. Maybe I'm a little bit self-serving in that, but I really believe it. Once you have learned something, no one can take that from you. 
you can lose pretty much everything else. But once you've learned a lesson, you will always have the opportunity to reapply it down the road. And so there's no better investment we can make in our organizations than like teaching our people things that are useful. This idea that HR could look into the world and is increasingly filled with interesting information, some of it good, some of it terrible, in a great way to sort of connect that intelligence of what does the organization need with the best in class in the world to meet that need, to give them that learning, to amplify it. I think the HR leaders who win will leverage both sides of that equation. Those tight cycles we talked about earlier will close and those will be the organizations. I love it. Leverage. I also think we can leverage and help grow the organization, right? Through talent, capabilities, like you said, learning. We can really provide a lot of, of gasoline to organizations as they leverage yeah. and grow in the future. Dave, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR. It was an absolute pleasure. JP, thank you so much for having me. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Dave for sharing his insights and real life experiences on people leadership. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe, share our podcast with at least one other person, or even better, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Rhonda Morris, Chief Human Resources Officer at Chevron. In my conversation with Rhonda, we discussed her amazing career at Chevron, the importance of taking calculated risks, and building relationships for impact. You don't want to miss this conversation with Rhonda. It was a great one. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.